When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and this is the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. Now, we know that the American decision to join the war helped turn the tide towards victory for Britain and its allies. But it was on Sunday, the 7th of December, 1941, that Japanese aircraft attacked the United States naval base in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and the US Pacific Fleet was devastated, with over 2,400 Americans killed. But it was not the decisive strike Japan had hoped for, as it awakened this sleeping giant, this industrial giant, that would turn into a nemesis. So why did Japan attack Pearl Harbor, and how did America respond? Well, in this podcast, History Hits' Rob Weinberg asked the big questions, those important questions, at a seminal event at King's College London to Professor Carl Bridge. Carl, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Pearl Harbor is one of the turning point events in the Second World War. Why did its geographical location make it a target? It's a complicated story, but essentially the Japanese were fighting in China. Japan wanted an empire, like the British and the French and various other empires, and they'd been moving into China for 50 years since the turn of the century. And in doing so, the Americans got more and more upset with the encroachments and said enough's enough, cut the oil off, essentially, American oil. 90% of Japan's oil was imported. So to keep fighting in China, um, once the oil was cut off, they had to find oil from somewhere else. And that oil was in Indonesia and Borneo, which happened to be Dutch and British at the time. So the Japanese Navy persuaded the Japanese government that they had to strike for the oil. They only had 18 months of oil left, so they had to do that in order to keep the campaign going in China. In order to take that oil, you had to blunt the other largest fleet in the Pacific, and that was the US fleet that was based in Hawaii. So it was a preemptive strike against the US fleet. To what extent were Japan's ambitions fueled by Emperor Hirohito's popularity at home? He's very popular because everybody thinks he's a god. Uh, That's fairly new too, actually. The god-emperor cult is is an 1890s phenomenon. Uh, You introduce universal elementary education and you've got to persuade everybody that something holds the state together, so why not choose the emperor? So the emperor becomes a god. He's a fairly unassuming bloke. 
40 years old, trained in marine biology, much happier looking at fish and mollusks than he is talking to people. He's essentially a figurehead. He's not against the expansion, but it's his military who are driving the expansion. It's a bit like the Crown here in Britain. He's advised, so-called, by his military, but he never says no, because if he says no, then they'll probably get rid of him. And, uh, you know, there'd been other emperors who'd been deposed and certainly lots of leaders who'd gone. The civilian leadership has nothing to do, by this stage, with the running of Japan. The prime minister's a general. They'd sidelined the civilian politicians. And even when the civilian politicians had some power, the military, under the Meiji constitution, the modern Japanese constitution at the time, the military had direct access to the emperor, which meant that they took their money out of the budget first before the rest got it. So it was very much a military state. So prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, were there efforts made to negotiate about the oil embargo? Yeah, when the Americans start talking to the Japanese diplomats in the spring, it's the northern spring, so April, May uh, 1941, about what America's terms would be for recognising the Japanese position in China, uh, but maybe giving them some oil in order to allow the, the China incident, as they call it, to continue. Those talks go on various combinations and dead ends and so on for several months. In fact, the Japanese send a second ambassador to reinforce the first one there. Now, some people say this was just bluff. The Japanese were planning to attack Pearl Harbor all the time. They're just waiting till they were ready. There's an element of that. The Japanese diplomats were never told. They were told that a war might break out at some point, but they were never told about Pearl Harbor. So they're sitting there negotiating in good faith right up until Pearl Harbor happens, essentially. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. Now, General Tojo becomes Prime Minister and Tojo's a bit worried because economists are telling him, his Treasury is telling him they haven't got enough money, they haven't got enough resources to fight this war. And Yamamoto is saying, I'm a poker player, I'm a samurai, you've got to take a risk, you know, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll get this thing right. And if we don't, you know, we're not worth saving anyway. And Tojo makes a speech in which he talks about the leap in the dark, essentially. It's a leap of faith. We don't know what's going to happen. We have to do this, otherwise we lose China and we lose our whole sort of mojo. And he, he says, in the Japanese term for this, is jumping from the platform of the Kiyomizu Temple in Kyoto. Now, the Kiyomizu Temple in Kyoto has a platform that's 150 feet above this waterfall. So you jump off the platform and you commit suicide, essentially. 
or you go straight up to heaven because you've got faith. <laughs> so he said it's like jumping off the platform at Kiyomisa. In other words, he knew that there was a hell of a risk in this, that the Japanese government uh, military had to take this, uh, which is interesting because they do take the risk and, and they, they lose. When did Japan then get involved with Germany and Italy and the Axis? In the, in the late 30s, they started talking to the Germans on a, an anti-communist ticket, essentially. They and the Germans and, and, and eventually the Italians were assigned a thing called the Anti-Comintern Pact, which meant they were all anti-communist. But it didn't put them in, into an alliance. In uh, September 1940, they actually go into the Axis alliance. So the three Axis countries sign a pact saying that we, we will defend each other and get involved in, in, in war with each other. Now, this happens at the time when the Japanese move into Indochina. So they move into, into what's now Vietnam, trying to cut off American supply routes through to Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Chinese forces who are fighting in southern China. Uh, the Americans then see this, they see the Axis is formed. It's also around about the time when Roosevelt's to be re-elected. He gets re-elected, he then imposes sanctions on the Japanese and says, get out of Indochina, which essentially means let us keep supplying Chiang Kai-shek. That then leads to a rolling series of embargoes, involves the British and the Dutch and the Australians and the New Zealanders and so on. By the middle of 1941, the embargo is pretty much complete. And the Japanese are, are really running out of oil and running out of various other commodities, uh, and they're running out of money. So would have America seen the alliance with Germany and Italy as a potential threat? There are various views about why the Americans joined the Second World War. And one simple answer is the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor uh, and the Americans have to respond. The Japanese are in alliance with the Germans. Hitler, three days after Pearl Harbor, declares war on the United States. You might think that's absolutely crazy, but he, but, but he does. And the Italians do the same thing. So they, the, the Axis saves the Americans the decision because it's already made for them. But the Americans already were bankrolling Britain, supplying Britain, supplying the, 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 the Allies, and moving ever closer to war with Germany. But the Japanese actually uh, jump in first. You've got to realise that when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbour, the Germans have just gone into Russia. and looks as though they're about to take Russia and about to essentially package up the whole of continental Europe. So the Japanese think it's a fairly easy thing to do to attack the Americans because the Americans dare to get involved in a bigger war under those circumstances with the Germans on their side. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. With confidence, in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. 
So was the attack on Pearl Harbor a total surprise? Uh, yes and no. Yes on Pearl Harbor, no that the Japanese attacked. The Americans and the British and the Dutch uh, were expecting the Japanese to attack somewhere. The Japanese had been talking about it for about a year. There'd been all sorts of indications that the Japanese were moving south, moving towards that oil and rubber in Southeast Asia. So they were expecting them to attack the Philippines and Malaysia and one or two other places, uh, but they weren't expecting them to go as far as Pearl Harbor. I mean, Pearl Harbor's a long way to go, and you're using up a lot of oil to get there, and uh, when you get there, you mightn't find the fleet in port that you might expect. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a risk to do it. Uh, but Yamamoto, the, the Japanese uh, naval commander, uh, argues that if you don't attack Pearl Harbor, it's only a matter of time before the Americans are going to cut off your supplies coming up from Southeast Asia. So you've got to knock them out first. And if you don't knock them out the first time, you might have to try again. And was there any anticipation that it was coming? Were the planes picked up on radar? Some of them were, um, but the Americans thought that they were their own. They knew that there were some B-17s coming in and they, they thought that they were their B-17s. You've got to remember, it's a, it's a lazy peacetime Sunday morning. Seven o'clock on Sunday morning, they see these blips on their radar. Oh, oh, they're the ones that we thought were the, the, their hours coming in. Uh, the American carriers were at sea. There were three American carriers that, that might have been in Pearl Harbor that happened to be at sea. Uh, and they might have been aircraft from them. So they had no idea that they were Japanese. So they just weren't expecting them. They thought they might have some forewarning. Now, the Japanese were very clever. They didn't attack from the, the sector that they thought they would. If you look at the map, the expectation is that the Japanese are going to attack from the west. They're going to come through Wake and Midway from the Marianas straight across, as the Americans do when they go back in the other direction. Japanese knew that this was expected, so they kept radio silence and they went as far north as they could, into the seas that nobody wanted to go into at that time of the year, in dreadful weather. Uh, lost quite a few men going through uh, this gap to the north. So they go almost up to Alaska and then drop straight down uh, through a surveillance gap and get to within 250 miles of uh, Hawaii and attack them from a quarter they don't expect. It's classic Japanese tactics. All those samurai movies you watch, they never tell you they're about to do it and they never do it from the angle that you think they're going to. The Japanese codename for the attack was Ai. And Ai is a classic Japanese sword strike, a samurai sword strike. Now, normally when, when you're having a duel with somebody, you take your sword out and you, you touch your nose or whatever it is uh, to show that you're about to start. Well, the Japanese don't do that sort of thing. They expect to win. They go straight into it. So the opponent is expecting some sort of ritual. The Japanese eye stroke, you take the sword straight out of the, of the scabbard and in one sweep go straight up from the, your opponent's hip to the shoulder and essentially knock them out of the action. So this is what they're expecting to do at Pearl Harbor. Now the Japanese know that the United States is nine times bigger than they are in economic terms and twice as big as they are in terms of population. So they're not expecting to defeat the United States. They're expecting to stun them sufficiently for them to shake their heads and think it's not worth fighting any further for China or to defeat Hitler who's already winning in Europe. Uh, let's sue for peace. That was the plan. It's interesting, Yamamoto is asked by Kanoi, who's the, the Prime Minister up until October, so it's just, just before Pearl Harbor, what he expects from the Pearl Harbor attack, because they've already planned the, the, the attack. And he says, I will run wild, meaning Japan will run wild in the Pacific for between six and 12 months. If we haven't got peace by then, I can't predict the future. In other words, we will lose. Because by then, the, the American economy and the weight of the American power will have started to kick in. 
Another calculation that's interesting is that the Japanese Navy know that in 1941, at the time of Pearl Harbor, they're 70% the size of the US Navy. By 1944, because the US are building so quickly, they're going to be 30% the size. So they're attacking at the time when they've got the relative advantage. And they think, of course, we're smaller, but we're more nimble, we're better trained, we're samurai, we've got a better spirit, we're going to win. And you think judo, you know, mm. the, the big guy gets thrown over by the little guy because the little guy's got better technique. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How did that day unfold then once the attack had happened on Pearl Harbor? Well, the Americans get a hell of a shock, but they regroup reasonably quickly the admiral in charge, he's much maligned, a man called Kimmel, he had been warned that there might be Japanese attacks somewhere in, in his area. He's in charge of the whole Pacific. So what he'd done was to send out two of his carriers. One of the carriers had gone back to the States, was on the way back to the States to be repaired. The other two, and there are only three there, and they're the main target for the Japanese, the other two had been uh, sent to deliver aircraft to forward bases. So they were expecting some sort of Japanese attack on Midway and, and Wake and the Marianas in that area, uh, not as far as Pearl Harbor. So they were out of the picture. He'd also prepared, he thought there might be submarine attacks. They might try to get submarines into Pearl Harbor. So they had intense patrolling outside Pearl Harbor. And the Japanese submarine attacks, there were five midget submarines and 30-odd other submarines sitting there waiting to attack. Only one of them gets in and it gets sunk. Three get sunk, another one runs aground, 
and no American ships actually leave Pearl Harbor while the fighting's going on, so the Japanese subs outside have nothing to do. So that element of the attack fails. Uh, the aircraft attacks, of course, very successful indeed. Another interesting element of this is that the American Admiral is not expecting any torpedo attacks in Pearl Harbor because it's too shallow. Nobody can the Allied torpedoes, British torpedoes, American torpedoes couldn't do it. And our airmen weren't well enough trained. Now, the Japanese airmen extremely well trained. Japanese develop a torpedo and a technique that can be specifically for use in Pearl Harbor. And they come down to 40 feet above the, above the surface, which is just unheard of, you know, and manage to get up again and, of course, deposit their torpedoes. So they use torpedoes in a place where they're not supposed to. Another classic Japanese technique. Now, the, the American battleships, uh, there are eight battleships in Pearl Harbor, a lot of other ships, but eight, eight big ships, there, and they're docked next to each other. So when they're going in with their torpedoes, they can only hit the outer lot. It's much harder to sink the inner lot because they're, they're behind the, the, the protection of the outer one. So three of them go down very quickly indeed. And then uh, another one uh, is sunk from the air by conventional means. And again, very difficult. You know, what do you do? They, these dive bombers, they're coming in. One of the Japanese airmen said, it's like trying to hit a moving cockroach from a standing position, dropping the thing from your eye. <laughs> eye level. <laughs> Think about doing that. And they could do it. That was the, the degree of precision necessary. Because you've got to get in, drop your bombs and get out, because you, you know, there's all sorts of flak and, and so on. The Americans do manage to, to get going relatively quickly. So battleships go. They don't get the aircraft carriers. There are two waves of aircraft that go in over, over the space of two hours. Nagumo, who's, who's the, the, the Japanese commander on the aircraft carriers, uh, Yamamoto's way back. I mean, he's, he's, he's in the command centre, but he's not controlling the battle. Nagumo's a bit worried. He's sent two waves, and he's got a third wave that he can send in before he runs out, as it were. But he doesn't know where the American aircraft carriers are. And what if he gets caught with his six aircraft carriers, which are more than half of the Japanese aircraft carrier strength? What if he gets caught by the Americans at sea? So he's, he's done quite a lot of damage. So he decides not to send the third wave in. Now the third wave's job was to destroy the American oil supplies. So they could have zapped the American Navy's oil supplies, which would have put them out of oil for six months, and they could have destroyed their submarine pens as well, and their repair facilities, which would have made it much more difficult to refloat those battleships that were in harbour. So the third wave was important, but Nagumo decides not to send them in. So they don't go in, so in a sense the job's only half done, and the Americans managed to refloat their battleships, most of them, uh, much earlier than, uh, than expected. Not that battleships were that much use in the Pacific War. It was the aircraft carriers that mattered. And they don't get those because they're not there. Now, there is this conspiracy theory that's been around since the time that, that Roosevelt knew this and he sent his aircraft carriers to sea in order to get the Japanese to bomb stuff that didn't matter uh, in order to get a declaration of war out of the American people. The evidence is non-existent for that. He'd have had to persuade about 30 senior commanders that this was the right thing to do in order to bring it off. And they weren't all of his political persuasion. So the chances of that happening were well more than minus. Uh, no evidence for it. Uh, it was just uh, lucky that they happened to be. And he didn't, of course, Roosevelt doesn't order the aircraft carriers out of the port. It's, it's Admiral Kimmel who's doing it for other purposes. Uh, so it's the conspiracy theory just doesn't wash. But Pearl Harbor did have the effect of America entering the oh, war. massively, massively. It's very interesting that the Japanese think that the Americans are not a, a militaristic people, they won't defend themselves, uh, they're not being attacked directly, Pearl Harbor's 
part of their empire essentially, but it's not a state. Later on it becomes a state, a wide, but not a state at this stage. So it's only a, a, a colonial territory. The Americans are sort of shake their heads and think, oh, it's not really worth it. Yamamoto says at one stage in the planning process, he says, oh, the US Navy, they're not very good. Uh, I've seen them because he'd been to the States. They're very good at, uh, at playing golf and bridge, he says. You know? <laughs> they might have been in peacetime, <laughs> but, uh, but they, they weren't when the, when the war. So the Americans get massively galvanised. I mean, they've been worried about Hitler. Uh, now they're even more worried about the Japanese uh, and they want revenge. Uh, Roosevelt says this is a day of infamy and the Americans are in massively into the war. Churchill, interestingly, says at the time, because he'd been trying to persuade the Americans into the war for, you know, since, since the, the war broke out, he said he slept the best sleep that he'd had uh, up until that point because he knew that now that the Americans were in, the enemy over time would be ground to dust. This was the, what the Germans called the Materialschlacht, the, the, the war of materials. The American economy was so big that they could take on the Germans and, and the uh, J Japanese combined. Can the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki be directly traced back to Pearl Harbor then? Uh, well, in the sense that, that they ended the war that Pearl Harbor started, yes. Not in any other sense really, because the atomic bombs hadn't been developed or tested <laughs> in 1941, so they didn't know they had them. They don't really know that they're effective until you know, a month or so before they're dropped. Uh, so, yes, uh, the intention was, certainly by 1943, they make it explicit, and probably earlier on than that, uh, that the war will be fought to a finish. Unconditional surrender. Now, unconditional surrender for the Japanese is unthinkable. Japanese don't believe in us, so they'd rather be completely annihilated than, than lose face to that extent. So you could say, completely annihilating the Japanese, uh, once you've got a weapon that can suggest that that might happen, then uh, the atomic bombs are linked. But uh, they didn't have them at the time, and the Americans were planning a, a full-scale D-Day type invasion of Japan. In fact, some of the American generals were annoyed uh, that, that they used atomic bombs, because there's no glory in atomic bombs, uh, whereas there is if, you, if you're MacArthur and you invade Japan. It feels like a big misjudgment on the part of Japan from the beginning. Yeah, it's a, well, uh, it's a tactical success that was a strategic disaster. In narrow military terms, it was a, a useful victory and it sets the American Navy back and so on and it allows you that grab for the oil. Uh, the irony is that, you know, you, you don't have the capacity to take the oil for very long before the Americans are going to come back. I mean, even if the whole American fleet had been destroyed in, in 1941, they'd have still built another one by 1944 that was the size of the Japanese. So it, it saves a bit of time in the war, but it also antagonises the Americans to such an extent that they're, they're, they're going to see, uh, seek revenge and defeating the Japanese. And also, I mean, getting a part of the world that the Americans wanted to trade with. So you've got to remember that the Germans had taken over all of continental Europe and they'd put up this big tariff wall around Europe. Uh, so for the Americans, there weren't many places left in the world to trade with. There's South America, there's Britain and the British Empire, and there's Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, Southeast Asia was about to be taken by the Japanese, so the Americans want to hang on to Southeast Asia in order to, to keep their economy ticking, and want to buy into Europe for that reason too. What have been the long-term implications of Pearl Harbor? Is there still some sense of mistrust between the United States and Japan as a result of the war experience? I don't think very much. Uh, uh, among the war generation, yes, uh, but there aren't many of, the, of the, that generation left. What happens is that Japan very quickly 
in the late 40s, early 50s becomes a massive ally in the same way as, as West Germany does uh, in the Cold War. And uh, the turnaround is, is, is remarkable. You, you lop the top off, you leave Hirohito there, which is very interesting. Uh, unconditional surrender doesn't mean you get rid of Hirohito. Uh, you redefine him, turn him into a human being and leave him there. Uh, although a lot of people still think he's a, you know, he's a god and an emperor. Shove in MacArthur next to him and away you go. So you find that Japan becomes the unsinkable aircraft carrier off the Asian coast, the way Britain is, as it were, off the European coast, in the Cold War. And of course, once China proper becomes communist in 1949, so Japan becomes your bosom buddy. The propaganda twist there is very interesting. I mean, what happens with the propaganda is that Japan becomes the American geisha. So Japan, instead of being this, this belligerent samurai maniac, suddenly becomes this pliant geisha. Uh, so it's feminized and it loses, as it were, its threat. Although the economy in Japan picks up very quickly indeed. I mean, by 1955, it's as big as it was before the war, which is remarkable. And it's partly American aid, but it's not just that. It's because the Japanese have the know-how. You get to the point where you can blame the Japanese militarists. Keep the emperor, introduce women's suffrage and a few other things to, to make it look like a different place, and keep your fingers crossed. Japanese elite didn't mind because they kept control anyway. They just did it through democratic means, buying votes and all the stuff that politicians do. Uh, Yoshida, who was the Japanese Prime Minister in, in the late 40s, he, he said, let the Americans think they run the place. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.